All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I'd like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. That's a weekly and monthly newsletter, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And to sign up for my letter or Chen's letter, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and Chen continues to have a couple of favorites uh, in the biotech sector, Sorrento Therapeutics and Sarepta Therapeutics. The biotech sector certainly has had its problems recently, but Chen seems to believe that these are two that can rise above uh, the general malaise of that sector. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to also encourage you to keep sending your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises along to questions4taylor at gmail.com, questions, the number four, taylor at gmail. Dot com. Uh, also, go to jtaylormedia, that's jaytaylormedia.com. Uh, for a lot of information that's there, I think you'll find very helpful, uh, in addition to uh, the, um, the replays of this, of this show, which you can pick up each and every segment there. Uh, we also pick up some things from the KE report that I think are very helpful. And one technical analyst in particular, Dr. P- Richard Postma, uh, has been very helpful uh, to me and uh, perhaps a little shorter term uh, viewpoint than Michael Oliver provides, but nonetheless, uh, between the two of them and, and Dr. Robert McHugh as well, some uh, really excellent people that show up from time to time at J. Taylor Media. I do want to thank our uh, sponsors for making this show economically viable today, Dynacert and Metanor Resources. Uh, Dynacert uh, has a technology that can immediately provide the benefits that Tesla is purporting to provide in terms of uh, reducing carbon emissions and also increasing um, the uh, gas mileage that uh, that you can get, and actually uh, diesel trucks are getting now. The Pepsi trucks have tried it and are getting anywhere from 10 to 18 percent more mileage using the technology from Dynasert. We'll be talking to the CEO of Dynasert sometime in the next several weeks. And Metanor Resources, that's a Quebec-based gold mining company uh, that is selling for pennies per share, but appears to be on the rebound. Uh, with a turn upwards today, I saw the stock was up some 18% today on uh, 4.3 million shares. So there's something's going on there. And hopefully, we'll get some insights into what might be happening there at Metanor when we speak to Ron Perry uh, in a few minutes after our first commercial break. I've titled today's show, Negative Interest Rates in a Cashless Economy, Dictatorship Arrives. 
My guests today, Jeff Deist and Michael Oliver, who is with me and will be speaking momentarily, and as I mentioned, also Ron Perry. Um, you know, as the Keynesian economic pathology digs the global economy deeper into depression, out of desperation and denial, Keynesian religious zealots like Larry Summers and Paul Krugman, they champion negative interest rates and laws making cash ownership a felony. That's what they seems to be there leading up to, these fellows. So from the point of view of Austrian economics, well, we'll ask Jeff Dice to opine on what impact these anti-free market policies will have not only on our economy, but on our personal liberty, and what impact they may have on stocks, bonds, and precious metals. Well, certainly, uh, Jeff will have some opinions on that, and we'll also ask Jeff to talk about the work of the Mises Institute and why there is, in fact, some reason for hope of a return towards freedom and civility in the future. And as I just noted, uh, in a few minutes, we'll be talking to Ron Perry. Uh, we'll see what's going on there with Metanor, but right now, I'm really happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me. Uh, to give us his views on the equities and precious metals markets. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. How are you doing? Always good to have you here. I'm doing well. Uh, you know, gold is up and uh, the equity market's down. I don't know. That's not any reason to be happy. Uh, but at least my personal portfolio is doing a little better in the early days of this of this year. Uh, let me just tell my listeners again, it's OliverMSA.com, Oliver. M is in Mary, S is in Sam, A is in Albert.com to keep up with Michael's work and also hopefully to subscribe to his service, which is excellent. It's a can't-miss service, and I look forward to it in my inbox. Uh, almost every day, Michael sends something along. So, Michael, on February 18th, you expressed uh, concerns that those who might be shorting the equity market might have to give some of that back, and you were definitely right. We've seen uh, we've seen some strength in the uh, in the equity markets, the S and P and the S and um, and the Dow, uh, but uh, we're running into a little bit of trouble now. But but in any event, what did you see back then on February eighteenth that was uh, convinced you that uh, uh, that uh, the shorts might have a little tough time of it for a few days? Um, there hadn't been talked about much then, but the Shanghai meeting of G20 coming up on this Friday and Saturday, and the panic tone of many of the central bankers who were going to attend that meeting, uh, it's clear it's not a routine meeting. These guys are scared, uh, and they should be scared, because the mm-hmm. yen is rallying sharply, and that's not what the BOJ wanted. Uh, equity markets, developed equity markets, uh, UK, uh, Europe, Japan, and U.S. are rattled. They are more rattled than we are, by the way. And that, therefore, upsets the central bankers. So they're in panic mode. Well, as an investor who believes in those things, I don't, but there are a lot of them that do. Yeah. That's their faith structure. That's their reason for being long. The central banks will print equities higher, and they, in fact, they did from 2011 through 2015. But that's coming undone. Um, and it's coming undone in, in ways that make them nervous. Therefore, investors who hope for you know another blessing from above they, they would naturally want to buy in front of that meeting. And sure enough, they did. And I think that's probably the largest motive power behind the market in, in, the last, in this last week's rally. Uh, from a point of view of momentum work, the rally was fully justified as a failing rally, not a succeeding one. But it, it, uh-huh. the rally itself was, was anticipatable uh, to some extent and also had some negative implications in it because it set up Sometimes rallies are bearish because what you do is you establish something below you a couple times. And once you do that, you establish a clear structure, what I call a structure. And when we rallied this past week, we got enough upticks to where I can now point down on my momentum charts at levels below us 
that if you go back there a third time, it's what's called the triple bottom breakout. Mm. And in order to set that up, you have to have the rally first. So yeah. to some extent, as a bear, I cheered the rally. Huh. Uh, however, it's getting time if one covered shorts to some extent in preparation for the rally to start redistributing. Now, it's possible the rally could get higher, take out the 1947 price high early this month, which we did not do yesterday, uh, and get up into the 1960s, 1980s on the S&P. It's possible, but I don't guarantee it. So if you want to be short and did cover, you want to start redistributing, I think, here and there. Mm. Oh, well, we certainly we're seeing, as I'm looking on the screen now, the Dow is down around, a, around 200 today, and the S&P is getting whacked pretty hard, too. Uh, do you think this rally, then, it's, it's probably about over? And then, that's what you're saying, I guess, that people ought to start looking back at the short high, side. Yeah, I think that yesterday's high at 1946, a point short of the high of the month, which happened to be the peak of a rally, uh, that, that was pretty much... Uh, took the air out of the rally. It could go further, but uh, basically, I think most of the sting has occurred. Um, and so, if one wants to be short the S and P, I mean, there are better things to do that can make money even more than a short S and P position. But if you want to be, you need to be, reconsider reinstituting positions or adding to positions on this rally. Yes. All right. All right. Well, well, like what? What would you say you can you can do better on than the, than oh, the S&P? Oh, I think gold and gold miners in particular will beat the pants off the S&P in terms of percentage possible gains versus the short gains on the S&P. Uh, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to just stop you there because on, the, on February 18th, you said, and I quote, what I would focus on most intently now is gold. Its action was pr- picture perfect. So I would like to ask right. you, what was picture? picture perfect about gold well, what's what has you so well, excited our recommended our recommended buy signals based on annual momentum and quarterly these are long-term buy signals these are not short-term uh-huh. trader signals occurred sure. in the 1140s and the 1160s within a week the market hit 1260 it backed up from 1260 back under 1200 within a matter of days and spike to the downside then uh-huh. it returned back up to 1240 and now it's quietly nesting 1220 1230 zone which uh, I believe that rush to 1260 is setting up a price chart feature, which I seldom pay attention to, but it's now apparent even to price charters, a channel top at around 1260. And I believe this channel top is coming out because momentum equivalents of this price feature have already come out. And so I think it's just a matter of pausing below that 1260 level, congesting. And when you go through to 1260, in fact, I think if you even touch 1260 again on the nearby mm-hmm. contract, and I would consider that to be April gold right now, mm-hmm. if you trade 1260 and you're bearish on gold, I think you better cover fast. And if you think gold has negative implications for the S&P, which I think it does, uh, I think that implies the S&P rally is over as well. So uh, right now gold is uh, $20, $30 below there and quiet. But it is holding well. Same mm-hmm. can be said for the strong yen futures, mm-hmm. which are coincident with gold. So right. uh, I, I, I like indicators to mutually uh, reinforce one another. I don't like just looking at one market in and of itself. Right. There are other, Excellent. You know, other like side 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 view mirrors, if you will. <laughs> yeah, sure. Not just the rear view mirror. Yes, that's excellent. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, I couldn't get over last week. I think it was when we talked to you. You weren't going to layer in. You were all in essentially. So, uh, obviously, the commitment is there on your part. You really believe that we've seen uh, that we are in the process of a turnaround in gold. I believe. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But this Going this should the 1140, be off to zone. That that did it for me. That did it. And then, and then, twelve sixty, we could be looking at something in the fourteen hundred, mid fourteen hundred range, something mm-hmm. like that. 
I would set that as my next layer. Once you clear that 1260, I think your next uh, working target, not the end of a bull, but a, a layer of resistance is around 1450. All right. Well, a technical analyst friend of mine uh, who talks frequently on Al Corlin's show uh, says that he thinks we have a few more days of, uh, you know, of relative strength in gold here, and then we're going to see some weakness heading into the early days of March. I believe, uh, Michael, that your more, your viewpoint is longer term than my uh, than my other mm-hmm. technical friend who's in and out of the markets frequently. Uh, so I guess you wouldn't be uh, at all dispirited by some weakness in, in early days of March in gold. No, uh, we've already had one heck of a bout of weakness right after we hit twelve sixty. The market dropped sixty nine dollars. Dropped yeah. to eleven ninety one. So we've already had that, and we could have have another little bout of weakness. Uh, con- part of the congestion process here is possible. However, I would caution: if you touch twelve sixty again, don't bet on any weakness. I would assume right. going going right then. Okay. All right, all right. Well, it certainly, uh, certainly, do you do provide some hope for those of us who have been uh, long-suffering bulls in the gold sector? So I want to thank you again. Uh, we we want to know the truth, not just the good news. And I know you're always there to tell us that, Michael. You tell people things they don't want to hear as well as things they do want to hear. It's based on the numbers and the objectivity uh, that you bring with you is is much very much appreciated, Michael. I want to thank you again for being with us once again, and uh, hope to do it next week. Good, Jay. See you then. Thank you. All, all the best. Well, folks, don't go away. As I mentioned, after a commercial break, Ronald Perry of Metanor Resources will be with us. This is a stock that, as I noted earlier today, is up some 18%. Well, it's still a penny stock, but there's something going on there, and uh, maybe Ron Perry can give us a hint as to what's happening. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Ronald Perry. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Dynacert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40 percent, increase torque, and provide up to 15 percent in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Dynacert's ability to reduce greenhouse gases provides long-term benefits to the environment. Dynacert trades on the TSX Venture, symbol DYA, and the OTCBB symbol DYFSF. The website is dynacert.com. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Ronald Perry. He's the director and treasurer of Metanor Resources, and I've known Ron for a number of years, and he's really very well-rounded in the in the area of small-cap companies. So I'm really glad to have him with me again. Thanks for joining me, Ron. Thanks for having me, Jay. Always good to talk to you today. We want to ask you about Metanor Resources. It's a sponsor to this show, Metanor um, is uh, really, you know, still standing like many companies 
have gone, uh, you know, have gone away during this horrible bear market run. And uh, kudos to Metanor for staying alive, and I think uh, has some bright prospects on the horizon. So that's what I'd like to talk to you about today. 421 million shares out at five and a half cents gives it a market cap around uh, 23 million in Canadian dollars. So. Ron, I, I just don't need to tell you anything about how tough it's been. It's been really, really rough. I've been in this business for over 30 years, and I can't remember a more difficult time. Much, if not most, of what has transpired, of course, is uh, you know has been out of the control of management. I mean, who can who can say where the price of gold is going? Which is probably the biggest factor uh, in terms of either success or failure in this business. But there are many things that are within management's control, and that's what I'd like to ask you about. Today, what are some of the plans that Metanor has uh, to to really turn things around for the company? I know that you're expecting higher grades from the Hufran portion of the bachelor mine. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what investors might anticipate with regard to grades coming from the Hufran? Oh yeah, no problem. With regards to Hufran, obviously, uh, you know, obviously we've gone through a couple of quarters here of uh, the grade has gone down. And but that's you know a, a mine is not a hom- homogeneous uh, uh, unit. You uh, you go through the low grade to get to the high grade, then you go back to low grade, you go to medium grade. Uh, that's why uh, companies like Nickel and Barrick and all the big guys have multiple mines, which gives them a lot more grade control. When something happens at one mine, they can go high grade to another mine, and they can income and amps smoothing of their guidance of the production for the year. We don't have that luxury. We have one shaft. And we have so many scopes, and we're stuck with what we have. So we've been going through a tough period here over the last couple of quarters. But going towards you, friend, our grade is a lot more higher. You know, we've been mining like four grams. We're going to get back to uh, what the mine is all about, seven to ten grams on the you, friend side. So we're very looking forward to, uh, you know, uh, end of uh, mid- mid-March, uh, say May, hopefully even beginning of March, April, May, June, uh, we're going to make up for the first part of the year. So we're very, very uh, enthused with what's coming up on the work schedule here. So, and especially the timing couldn't be better. I mean, obviously we've hit seventeen hundred dollar Canadian gold. So we're very, very. Uh, the timing is going to be coming up very good for us, and the grade is moving up, and that's the whole key. And, uh, and that's why mm. we're looking at other properties. All right, Ron. And, uh, so we'll talk about that too. All right, Ron. So you've got seventeen hundred dollar gold compared to $1,300 uh, some time ago, and you've got higher grades. So coming out of the Hufran, you should have some good positive cash flows, I would hope, right? You're expecting? Exactly. Yes, all right, so... There's no question about that. All right, so now you've made a new discovery recently. It's my understanding, the Moroy deposit. Um, what, what can you tell us about that? How soon might you be able to produce from there? Is that a, is that a prospect anytime soon, production from the Moroy? Well, it, yes, it is It is a prospect soon, but you always have to say soon. Uh, soon is like 12 months or so, for sure, that this is not immediate production. Sure. The beauty of it is is that when you're standing on the Moroy uh, discovery, which is just on the other side of the tailing pond, you look across the tailing pond and you see our majestic mill. So you don't have to be a Harvard MBA to figure out that this project is not going to cost a lot of CapEx. The mill is already there. It's mm-hmm. permitted and it's running. And, you know, to upgrade that mill, we know for a fact that we've already quoted something, to do a 50% capacity increase is under $3 million Canadian. Yeah. And, and one thing that Methanor is good at 
is we're very good at construction and, you know, sinking shafts. We do things on budget or, or well, or a 10, 15% under budget. That's what we've done in the past. Anything, anything to do with construction, that's one of the things we're very good. We're very entrepreneurial. How soon might you have a resource from the Moore Roy, and, and what sort of grades have you been pulling from there, Ron? Well, let's, um, let's put it this way. I think with about 1,500 meters of drilling, we actually do have, we can't officially account it, but our geologists, our geologists, they're allowed to do 43 101s, but it's internal. But with 1,500 meters at surface of the Moroy, we have 10,000 ounces. So it's, it's, it's very, and we are planning 60,000 meters this year because we have the flow through to spend on it. So when we say uh, 60,000 meters to most companies, that's going to be at least $5 million, you know, five, $6 million because you say almost 80 to $100 a meter for all the costs, including geology and lab. But we have all that. So, uh, you know, my geologists are paid. They're, you know, many of geologists are paid. They're, they're on payroll. Mm-hmm. Our lab is paid. It's there. It's, it's you know, so it, it's not really an external cost. So when, you know, when my partners say it's going to cost, uh, it's worth five, six million dollars, don't tell the investors five, six million. It's going to cost us about $55, $50, a meter cash cost going out. So we'll get it done for three million plus dollars, which we have in the bank. And we will be cash flowing. So we are going to do 60,000 meters on Moroy. Boy, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a very exactly. aggressive. Uh, uh, how soon, Ron? How soon do you plan to? We're starting it right now. I mean, but I mean, is that over right now? Is that over the next couple yeah. of years or, or what? Because that's a very no, aggressive that's a, that's drill over, program. That's this year. That's a very aggressive gr- drill program, and you're looking at a surface. Yeah, we have we have we have the flow through to spend it, so we're going to do it this year. And so that's what we're starting with. Though the key here is we but we've announced this is that we've built an ice bridge in the tailing pond because we want to. We have uh, some anomalies that we did deep hole IP, and we will put this eventually onto our website. Um, it's a three D model showing the massive IP that we did. So we we have drill holes. We put. Uh, what they call downhole uh, IP, and we sent the charge, and these massive anomalies showed up. So we are going on the tailing pond, and that will start, uh, uh, in fact, that started uh, yesterday, on Monday. Mm-hmm. So we are drilling, we are aiming for the anomaly. So hopefully within a couple of weeks, we'll have results, because as, as I said earlier, we have our own lab. Our lab is 1.5 million atomic absorption and fire assay. We do it ourselves. Yeah. And we do send out, we do sell 10% to be verified by external labs to make sure, but we have a we have an unbelievable lab department. All right, Ron, you have a, uh, you have to sell 20% of your production from Bachelor Mine uh, to Sandstorm for $500 an ounce. That was the agreement that you made in order to get some capital to get moving into production and so forth in the past. But would material from the Hufren and from the Moroy also be subject to the Sandstorm, that same Sandstorm deal? Yes. Unfortunately, yes. Anything within a 1.5-kilometer radius of the mill is included. Uh, however, anything ex- exterior of 15 is then it comes into a potential new mine life, and then there's a whole bunch of clauses in there, in other words, which would mean that Sandstorm would have to, uh, once we declare it to be a new mine, they would have to retroactively pay 20% of the development cost and any future development costs as a partner. But within the 
meter uh, kilometer radius it's included at present. Obviously, we will be discussing you know a, a new agreement with them as things go forward because you know we've cash flowed them 20 million US. So technically, the money they advanced us on prepaid gold, which is wasn't a loan, but we've cash flowed that on the profit from the US selling price to the US 500. They've received over time 20 million. So nothing what can cash flow. We paid down our seven million dollar debt with the government. Uh, Resource Quebec is fully paid, and that cost was probably with interest and and uh, special things we had to advance through hoops over time with the Quebec government. Even though it's friendly, we still they made uh, we probably cash flowed them ten. We paid down our convertible debenture by one, and we cash flowed in excess of twenty million U.S., which is in Canadian dollars, close to twenty five million. So maybe I can cash flow. Now it's this year in 2016 and 2017. We figure it's the year for the shareholder to get something back. So that's why we're looking at Mulroy and uh, and also uh, we'll talk about Barry later, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about Barry right now. In fact, uh, you uh, that is a, a deposit that you've mined from in the past that is not subject to Sandstorm's uh, streaming deal. Um, you hauled that some, if memory serves me correctly, something like 60 kilometers from the Barry deposit to uh, to bachelor to the bachelor mill where you were producing, but uh, Ron, as I recall, back at the time when you were producing a couple of years ago, uh, the grades were you know were fairly low uh, at least when you com- when you, when you finished there it was like one point two to one point four grams per ton. Uh, at the time, I believe the price of gold was around thirteen hundred compared to as you said a little while ago seventeen hundred. Now I I believe you're uh, at least contemplating the possibility of putting Barry back into production. I think Barry has tremendous upside exploration potential from my understanding. But what can you talk to us a little bit about the plans for the Barry deposit? Are you going to put it back into production? Very good question, and uh, I think it's very apropos that we discuss this, coming off the backs of more what. There's, there's no question that, and going back to Sandstorm, Sandstorm does not have any uh, right to the gold under a streaming on on uh, Barry, they do not have any right of any other acquisitions, neither do Bousson and Wanapati in Ontario at present. So that's very clear that we clarify that. So why we know uh, as a small junior producer with only one mine in production, we, we, there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of reward, but there's a lot of risk. So to minimize risk, we know, and we've been saying that for the last couple of years, that we need to put a second mine into production. So we can also do some smoothing as, as the big boys do. So what we're looking at is more wine is a year to two years away probably. And the battery is with hopefully within the year, uh, you know, maybe this summer, fall. We are presently really studying the whole thing. And as you said, gold was 1250, 1300 Canadian. Now, two, uh, the three beautiful things have happened. The price has gone to 1700. The grade is still there, but we've been looking at it, and there are areas of the pit. This would not be 40,000, 50,000 ounces of production per year. We're talking probably sub-30,000 ounces per year, but profitable. Why? Transportation costs were $22 a ton when we were operating. When we were operating Barry, we were paying for sinking the shaft at Bachelor. So, in other words, Barry was not a standalone. It was... As a, as a standalone, it was it was uh, being bastardized to pay some uh, expenses at bathroom, which was mm-hmm. the, was the plan. But what I'm trying to say on a costing model as a standalone now, we don't we wouldn't have to pay that. 
I'm just, and let's just, let's just suppose that we put bachelor on care and maintenance. Well, obviously the payroll goes down substantially. Mm-hmm. Then we have barriers of standalone. Now, how has it become profitable? You just said it earlier, 1300 to 1700 The old mill was Merrill Crow back then. Mm-hmm. We were only recovering in the low 80%. We are now recovering in 97%. Uh-huh. The other thing, the other thing is the mill operates for bachelor ore at 750 to 800 tons per day max. With barrier ore, we can go 1100 to 1200 and that costs you nothing. That is not what I talked about, the $3 million upgrade. No, no, this is because the ore is softer. This is an automatic. So we'd be running at close to 1,200 tons a day with the same equipment, same people. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, you run it, when you come into our mill, there's three people there. It runs by itself. Yeah. So you are going in. So, so you know, uh, uh, so A, you've got, you're not paying for other costs. Transportation costs are probably going from $22 a ton to 17 or maybe less per ton. Gold has increased, and efficiencies at the mill are at 97%. All this bodes very well. So we are continuing. We're going to get some consultants in to look at uh, hydrating the pit. But we, we think there's money on the table even at a gram and a half to two grams. But there are some sections that could be three to four grams. So we will uh, keep the shareholders apprised of that as well as we're going 60,000 meters on more left. So we got an exciting year up ahead. Too. All right, very good. Well, just uh, with the last uh, minute or so we have left here, Ron, I know that this is really, if nothing else, an asset play. You have a mill there that is uh, that can very easily be upgraded, I think, to 1,200 tons per day, perhaps, something like that, and that's using the, the yeah. uh, bachelor uh, material, which is, as you pointed out, you can already do 11 to 1,200 tons of uh, from Barry. But for uh, you have the ability, you have a, you have all that infrastructure in place. You have a mill, you have all of these properties around you uh, in which you can explore and develop more gold resources. You have other people around you as well that have properties that might need a mill. Seems like you have an awful lot going for you. What uh, book value do you do you have, or do you think uh, this Metanor has in terms of its uh, share price? How does it compare the asset value That's, of the of the company relative to its current market cap? There, there's no question, uh, Jay. That's an excellent point. Our book value is around 52 million. We're trading at 23 million. We have a non-cash balance sheet item that should be on the balance sheet. Is the fact that we do have a loss carry forward of close to 50 million dollars. This is worth at least 15 to 17 million cash. Uh, if somebody acquired us. So there's a lot of hidden values. The sum of the parts is greater than the whole. You know, old Dan, who's in the area, that the, the former Cisco boys have, uh, you know, started to, uh, they bought a windfall late. We were trying to do a deal with a windfall, but we lost out. But at the end of the day, the fact that they paid $28 million for 1.6 million ounces bodes well for Barry, because Barry had 800,000 ounces. So simple math, there's $14 million of worth to Barry. But then Barry has access to a mill. Windfall does not have access to a mill. And Barry has a permit to operate. They don't have a permit. So is an ounce equal to an ounce? I don't know. But I'm trying to say again, the value is there. It is an asset play. And we do have the sum of the parts is greater than all. All right, Ron. And we'll have to leave it at that. We're, uh, we're out of time. But it certainly seems to me that you have a story here. Given the current price, yes, there are a lot of shares out, but let's look at the relative value. 
it looks like, uh, especially if we've got wind at our backs now and a new gold bull market starting, uh, I think people are going to make a lot of money uh, with Metanor uh, if, uh, if, uh, if conditions remain as they are. They seem to be here early in this year, Ron. So I want to thank you very much for your time and keep up the good work, and we'll look to check back with you soon again uh, for an update. Thanks for having me, Jim. Well, that's all the time we have for now, but don't go away because coming back after the commercial break, Jeff Dice will be with me. He is the president of the Mises Institute, and we're going to talk about negative interest rates and a cashless society, what that might mean, not only for our economic well-being, but also for our liberty. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Deist. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Dynacert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40 percent, increase torque, and provide up to 15 percent in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Dynacert's ability to reduce greenhouse gases provides long-term benefits to the environment. Dynacert trades on the TSX Venture, symbol DYA, and the OTCBB symbol DYFSF. The website is dynacert.com. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again Jeff Dice, formerly Chief of Staff for Ron Paul when Dr. Paul was running for president. Uh, and now I'm happy to say that Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute. And I'm guessing many, if not most of you, are familiar with the Mises Institute, but if not, I strongly suggest you do become familiar with it because... The Institute, which is named after the great Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, has among has among uh, human institutions, in my view, the only answer to America's economic and social demise. Of course, uh, of those in power, folks in power are not interested. They don't have much to say about the Mises Institute. Is probably one of the reasons you don't hear very much about it, because the Institute, uh, most certainly, its ideas, its ideas of freedom and liberty threaten the system of theft that the central banks have clandestinely carried out against the masses of people. Really throwing uh, fraudulent money at us, really essentially systematically destroying price discovery of capital. And how can we have capitalism if you can't know what the price of capital is? Well, that's certainly what the central banks have done. They've destroyed uh, and are in the process of destroying capitalism. So I would strongly suggest you go to the Mises uh, Institute website that's Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org, where you will find many very interesting and thought-provoking articles 
uh, for example, some of them that I noticed were posted there uh, when I took a look today at the website, why women pay higher prices for the same products, why drafting women is a terrible idea, how government buys your support, and why negative interest rates are guaranteed to fail. Also, the Institute has uh, many videos and uh, uh, interviews that Jeff does with various people and, and various things of uh, not only entertaining, but I think very valuable in terms of helping us understand how the world really works. And you can even uh, catch up with some of the, uh, some of the events that uh, the Mises Institute carries out. I know they have the Mises Circle event that I attended in New York a couple of years ago. Also, uh, last year up in Connecticut, uh, they have what they just had one down in Houston, and I was an excellent uh, interview I watched uh, there uh, that uh, really sort of gives you some reason for optimism. Lou, Lou, Lou Rockwell, who is the founder of the Mises Institute, gave an excellent speech there, and uh, and you know it's we talk a lot on this show about gloom and doom, but there are reasons to be hopeful. Uh, and uh, you know if, if the truth gets out there, and you know, Dr. Paul has always talked about. The reasons to be hopeful is that the truth is that we have truth on our side, and I believe that's true. I believe the Mises Institute, uh, in terms of its, uh, its 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 basic views, and uh, are based on reality. And uh, I think anybody who looks at their work will will understand that that's the case. Uh, but in any event, uh, I'm really pleased to have Jeff Dice, the president of the Mises Institute, with me today. Thanks for joining me, Jeff. Well, thank you, Jay. You know, I want to ask you. Uh, and focus on the title of our show, Negative Interest Rates and a Cashless Economy, Dictatorship Arrives. Well, it sounds pretty ominous. Uh, but before we get to that, tell us about the Mises Institute. Uh, how are things going there? Any upcoming events uh, on the East Coast where I might easily go to? Uh, you know, it's, I, I think you maybe mentioned something in Boston coming up this year. Yes, Jay, we do have something in Boston in October I believe. Uh-huh. So uh, our website, Mises.org, has, has more news about that event, um, trying to get some, uh, some great speakers for that. Uh, we also have events this year in Dallas-Fort Worth, um, thinking Seattle, uh, here in Auburn, Alabama as well. So we have a pretty busy 2016 planned and uh, looking forward to it very much. Well, let's get on to this idea of negative interest rates. Japan has now gone to negative rates and uh, a couple of European countries as well. How likely do you think it is that the U.S. is going to go in that direction as well? Because I'm, I'm hearing different ideas from the mainstream. Some are saying, yes, we're, we're, we need to do it. Larry Summers, for example. And then there was another gentleman that I just uh, saw the other day from BlackRock that was saying, oh, what a bad idea it is. So, you know, these are uh, two people from the mainstream that seem to have different ideas. But what do you think? Do you think it's likely we're going to head into negative interest rate territory in the U.S.? I would have to say no. Certainly not impossible, but I don't think it's likely, at least not imminently likely. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go back and recall that during the, uh, the period of the late bubble and then the crash of 08, Congress passed an emergency stabilization bill. I love this, right? It sounds like something out of an Ayn Rand novel. Uh-huh. And one of the things that bill did was it, it permitted, in fact, authorized the Federal Reserve to pay Fed member banks interest yeah. on their excess reserves held at the Fed. Uh, at Ben Bernanke's urging, uh, the effective date of that legislation was pushed up to 2008. So as of about 2008, uh, banks have been getting interest payments of a quarter point 
uh, on their excess reserves held with the Fed. So the effect of all this has been to prevent the federal funds rate from becoming negative, right? The overnight rate at which banks lend money to each other uh, basically cannot become negative when they can just park their reserves and get a quarter point from the Fed. I see. Um, So Mm -hmm. as a result of that, as long as that remains in place, it's unlikely um, that commercial banks would turn around and, and offer or demand negative interest rates from their, let's say, prime borrowers or prime depositors. So mm-hmm. as long as that remains in place, I think it's unlikely. Uh, but there's no reason that that uh, cannot be removed legislatively. And also, uh, the bill that was passed by Congress didn't mandate this on the Fed. It, it authorized and permitted it. So I think the Fed, uh, in, in, internally, through its own policies, could change this rule without Congress acting. So that's that's something interesting to keep your eye on if you want to okay. have maybe a bellwether. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, Jeff. You mentioned a quarter percent. I know it was a quarter percent, but it's my understanding, and, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding today when the Fed increased the interest rates recently, they actually increased that to one half of, of a percent to the member banks. So I, I may be wrong about that, but that's my understanding. Uh, so it would seem as though the Fed is moving in the opposite direction of negative rates, or at least wanting us to think they are. Well, it's a very un-American concept, isn't it? Negative interest <laughs> rates. So it's, it's, we're, perhaps we're not quite yet as malleable as the Japanese and European citizenries. At least I hope that's the case. Yeah, well, we can hope because I, I just can't imagine a negative interest rate. Just, it just seems so, so absurd. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, you know, and the Austrians, uh, least of all, maybe I'm just too much schooled in the Austrian economic theory, uh, but uh, and maybe as you say, Americans are just just too logical yet about how the world really works. In spite of all of the uh, all of the propaganda we get day in and day out from the folks like Larry Summers and uh, Paul Krugman and the like that think we should go to negative rates now to uh, to spur the demand side of, of borrowing. Interestingly enough, uh, one of the people that I listened to recently was saying, well, Larry doesn't understand that, in fact, what he's talking about only is the demand side of borrowing. What about the lenders? And what you're doing is essentially uh, crimping the margins that banks get uh, when they lend money. And so going to negative interest is just uh, it's just not going to work because banks won't be willing to lend. People might be willing to borrow, but banks won't be willing to lend. But in any event, um, talk to us a little bit, Jeff, about the the Austrians have a view that I think is absolutely right about interest rates, their understanding of interest and why it's necessary to let the markets prevail uh, and why you have to have positive interest rates always. Well, conceptually, it is very important to understand that interest rates represent human action. They represent time preferences mm-hmm. amongst human actors. And more than anything, interest rates are prices. If we think of interest rates as prices, just like we think of the price of milk, then it's perhaps more conceptually clear that the government ought to leave those prices alone and not manipulate them. Basically, the price of borrowing money depends on two things. It depends on the lender's willingness to not buy stuff today, but rather to give you the money in exchange for some interest payments and a a little more money down the road, but with some risk that you might default. And then the borrower's preference to say, I want to consume something, maybe that's a new car, so badly today without waiting 
and saving up for it, that I'm willing to pay a premium in the form of interest to have it today. So Mm -hmm. the lender prefers to give you some money today in exchange for more money down the road. The borrower prefers the opposite. And the point at which their their relative time preferences of the borrower and the lender come together is what we ought to call the price or the interest rate. Unfortunately, uh, central banks come along and interfere in this relationship, but it's so important for us to understand it conceptually first mm-hmm. to then understand what's wrong with what central banks are doing. So interest rates are just prices and they represent a supply and demand and a meeting of the minds between the borrower and the lender, just like the price of anything else. And so savings really do represent capital, doesn't it, Jeff? I mean, I mean, we have the notion here that capital can be created out of thin air. We capitalize, recapitalize the banks by printing enormous amounts of money and then directing that money into the banking system, partly by that positive interest rate that was paid to, uh, to the banks for just keeping their money there. But um, it, it seems to me, as you point out, that if, if you agree that savings is really what are true honest, legitimate capital, it's what is not consumed, savings, then the price of those savings are not allowed to be discovered, right? That's what's happening when you suppress the interest rate. You're not allowing that price of capital to be, uh, to be discovered. And if you can't allow capital to be, the price of capital to be discovered, how can you have capitalism? Can it survive in that environment? Well, you really don't have capitalism. You have a mixed economy. And, and of course, price discovery is so important because without that, we don't really know what consumer preferences are and we don't really know what capital accumulation or savings rates would be. But, but you're right. Capital accumulation, which occurs when individuals or businesses bring in more money than they spend, mm-hmm. is absolutely at the heart of a productive economy. Now, the, what we might call the neo-Keynesianism that rules today focuses only and ever and always on consumption. The whole concept of GDP is, is spending. It's all consumption. And so they have this monomaniacal idea that we have to create constantly demand for people to buy stuff. And when in fact... Demand is inherent in human nature. We all want more stuff. We all want yeah. a more comfortable life. But what's not inherent in human nature is whether or not we're productive enough to pay for it, to afford the stuff. Mm-hmm. And so what the Fed does is it distorts that. It makes us feel like we're richer than we are. And unfortunately, uh, from the Austrian perspective, it, it, when this uh, the, the boom is artificial and the bust is deeper and more painful than it would be under natural cycles that might occur um, absent a central bank or a federal government intervening in the whole process. Well, getting back to this negative interest rate thing, it, it seems to me, I mean, it's being tried now in Japan. It's being tried, I think, is it in Switzerland, maybe one of the Nordic countries or two, a couple of them. Uh, and it, I don't see any reason why people wouldn't take their money out of the banks, Jeff. Why, why would they not take their money out of the banks if that's the case? Well, of course they would. It would cause bank runs in a rational world. And that's the last thing. Uh, that central bankers want because they fear and hate and fight deflation. So that would be a deflationary event, right? Cash would literally cash yeah. would be taken out of circulation. No one in their right mind would put $1,000 in the bank today in exchange for $900 you know, a year or two from now. 
um, you know, in any rational world. The only reason that this is even possible is because um, if you have some sort of fixed rate of loss, negative interest from the bank or from a bond, let's say a coupon bond, you might say, well, it's an insurance policy, right? Mm-hmm. The world's going to hell. But at least this way, I know that my nominal 1,000 will be nominal 900 when I get yeah. it back as opposed to nominal 800 or 700. So you almost have to view negative interest rates as kind of an insurance policy against greater loss mm-hmm. uh, than the stated negative rate. But uh, again, uh, absent negative insurance rates, in, there's no natural rate of interest that would ever be negative. No one would ever say, I'll give you $1,000 today and in time, you'll pay me back 900. That would never occur absent central bank and federal and government meddling. Yeah. You know, so, if let's say the next step then to, to avoid or keep people from taking money out is being proposed, it seems at least it's being proposed in Europe. Uh, I think somebody's proposing to take the 500 euro note out of circulation. And Larry Summers, I think it would get as Mr. Summers is suggesting we get rid of the $100 bills in the United States, seems to be a step in that direction of wanting to go towards total digital money away from, away from, um, uh, from cash in your pockets. I mean, do you see that as a possibility sometime down the road? I guess oh. if you go negative interest rates, it could be a possibility. Or if people are just frightened about the solvency of the banks in which they put their money in, they might also, if they're fearing bail-ins, for example, uh, people might want to start taking their money out of banks and putting it under the mattress or perhaps uh, buying gold at gold money or bit gold or someplace like that. Well, there's no question about it. Larry Summers is not, in today's world, he's not considered some outside the mainstream guy. He's a former no. Treasury Secretary. So if they, if they do move towards negative interest rates and towards bail-ins, there's no question that people would want to get as much cash out of the bank as they could. So they would have to uh, simultaneously move us towards more of a cashless system. We already see the, er- the people who have sort of early forewarning in this are out there busy buying safes and putting, putting physical cash in them. We've seen this in, J- in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think the future me- will hold an intensifying war on cash. And, and this proposal by Summers to eliminate the $100 uh, note and above, there used to be $1,000 and $5,000 U.S. banknotes back when those were worth a lot more, of course. If you just got rid of $100 bills and left us with 20s and below, first of all, you'd eliminate something like 60% of all uh, cash and circulation face value. Um, and, and you would just make it so much harder for people to hoard cash. So it's a very scary proposition. And, you know, this is how government does things. It, it, it issues these trial balloons and it kind of tests public opinion, like when Summers said this the other day, and then it ratchets it back. But, but what seems outrageous today might not so, seem so outrageous a year from now or five years from now. So, so I suspect that this is coming and, and I suspect that wise people um, will take steps now to to, to ensure that they have some cash or physical gold or physical silver outside of the banking system altogether uh, to protect themselves. Well, exactly, Jeff. And I would, you know, the one main reason that the establishment has always said you don't want to own gold is because it gives you no interest rates. You get no, no return on it. Well, heck, 
Now you're getting less than any return. You're getting no return for your bank deposits. Why keep your money? Why keep the dollar? Of course, you can argue as long as gold is going down against the world's reserve currency, you're still better off owning dollars than gold, although recently, so far this year, that hasn't been the case. In almost every currency around the world, gold has appreciated last year, except the dollar and maybe one or two others. Uh, So I can't think of any reason why people shouldn't be thinking in those terms now, Jeff, before it's too late. Because as you say, they send out these trial balloons. There's a bit of of a gasp on the part of logical, reasonable people. They pull it back. And then sometime in the future, when there's another tragedy, some, something comes along that's really uh, frightening, uh, then, they, then they do it to us probably. I mean, it's, I can't imagine that the whole idea of the tremendous amount of the things that the policies that were put into place after uh, 2008, 2009 were unbelievable. They were almost unimaginable before that. So I don't know. It's, it, I think you're right. Well, in terms of looking forward here, Jeff, with about uh, seven or eight minutes left, yet this time goes so fast, but looking at presidential politics now and the election politics that are going on, I mean, some people have really talked about it being more of a circus or bread and circus than anything else, but the press is asking the question, can Trump be stopped? Why should that question even be asked? I mean, aren't we supposed to have be a country by the people and for the people? Why should they even be asking why... And who's behind that question? Why should Trump be stopped? Uh, that's that's interesting. It makes me laugh how many forty thousand dollar a year journalists are so slavishly beholden uh, to people who don't care about them, but who manipulate and control public opinion. It, it really is a sort of we could spend a whole day on that topic sometime. But yes, um, I, I think that uh, he can be stopped, and I suspect that he will. Uh, you'll notice just the other day. Uh, let's say a week ago now, Salon.com had an article about how Hillary is going to lose the whole thing and she's so vulnerable and there's never been a successful nominee who was under serious investigation by the FBI and she's unlikable and she has health problems and blah, blah, blah. So a few days later, Hillary prevails in the Nevada Democratic primary. Now, if you believe Roger Stone or some other people, she prevailed in an unholy manner. But nonetheless, she prevailed. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, just a, less than a week later, we're back to this narrative of Hillary's inevitability. Yes. So in just a week's time, th- there's such a need to, to sell clicks and eyeballs and get people to headlines that uh, you, know, you can't trust what you read week to week. So, so if someone is saying, can Trump be stopped, the implicit assumption is that is that he somehow seems unstoppable. And that's very much a week-to-week primary-to-primary thing. So he could absolutely uh, be stopped in this upcoming Super Tuesday or SEC primary in the South. So there's nothing uh, inevitable about Trump. Yeah, well, interesting. You mentioned Roger Stone because there's an excellent interview that I know uh, that Lou Rockwell did with him recently, and he was laying out the possibilities uh, or the likelihood of a brokered convention in Cleveland and, and noting that there was an art, actually a law put in, uh, a rule put in by the Republicans, I think, that was really meant to stop your former boss, Ron Paul, from making any great progress uh, that, that essentially makes it uh, almost impossible unless you are a dominant front runner and you win a certain number of not just uh, plurality, but a majority of voters in various states, 
uh, and it was, uh, according to Stone, it was put in place by the Romney people to make sure Ron Paul didn't get any kind of traction uh, or have any possibility of, of being, he wasn't even nominated. So in order to be nominated, you have, they, they're making the hurdle so high that they can basically control it. And the idea that Stone has is that we'll go into Cleveland at a brokered convention, and then uh, the, the power brokers behind the scene will decide who they want to be president. And he's suggesting it could even, uh, it could even be another Bush. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, first, uh, it would be lovely, wouldn't it, if this uh, rule that the uh, GOP establishment put into place to hurt Ron Paul in 2012 comes back to bite them and actually favors Trump because, let's say, Rubio or Cruz don't win eight states outright and thus none of their supporters can make a motion from the floor that they be the nominee. <laughs> so I would, I would love to see that scenario play out. But, uh, you know, I don't... I, I don't think they're going to bring back Jeb. I, I, at the end of the day, I would say more, most establishment Republicans are perfectly comfortable with a Hillary Clinton presidency. Yeah. In terms, you know, there's not, her tenor might be different, but her domestic policies are going to be largely indistinguishable f- from a Rubio or a Kasich. Mm-hmm. Um, and her foreign policy uh, is going to be the same as a Rubio or a Casas, but perhaps more bloodthirsty because as the first woman, she wants to prove her toughness or something, God yeah. help us. Yeah. So, you know, we have to understand that it's not Democrats versus Republicans as so no. much as it is sort of inside the Beltway versus outside. So they can live with Hillary and, and they certainly will. And they'd much rather have Hillary than Trump. All right. Well, Jeff, uh, so, we're going to have... So there we go. Uh, we're going to have to leave it at that because I'm out of time. It's... it's uh, so much more to talk about, but I just want to tell my listeners, it's Mises.org. Go there and you'll hear a lot of the interviews that Jeff, uh, Jeff does there and a lot of other really great material. There are a lot of books, a lot of things. If you really want to know and understand liberty and why things are not going so well in our country, I think Mises.org is the best place to start out uh, in your quest for truth. So thank you very much, Jeff, for being with me again, and uh, uh, we'll have to do it again sometime real soon. Folks, that is all the time we have today. Uh, I do want to thank you for listening and uh, tell you that next week my guest will be John Tomazos, one of the top Wall Street analysts in the mining sector. And John will certainly have some things to say about the gold mining sector and, and some companies I'm sure that he follows that you're going to want to know about as well. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, and all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.